0: Pray with me. Lord Christ, you have the words of eternal life. So, Lord, I pray today that we might open our hearts. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, may you shape us more into your likeness. Speak to us through your living word today. It's in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, So, I I love this season that we are in right now where you, you have... Um, the the trees just rapidly changing color like this, uh, and, and what we see is like we just see this like rapid oscillation between like really really warm lovely days like this and super super cold days uh, like we've had before. And what this does is it thoroughly confuses the trees, uh, they change color, and then all of a sudden, you know, when, when the temperature drops, all these leaves just dump upon the nice green grass of our lawns and everything, uh, and it happens quite radically, really, really quickly. Um, now, one of the, the wonderful pleasures of this life, I think, is bagging up all those leaves and cleaning your yard and having your yard be as green and crisp and lush uh, as possible during all the chaos of this season. And to kind of top, and also I want to be clear, because I did not do that this last weekend. Uh, it was my wife who did that. Um, so I want to give credit to her for doing an awesome job of like picking up the leaves. But another satisfaction that can sort of be layered upon this is is when you compare your lawn to the one right next to it. And you know that you've done a really good job when there's just this like absolute crisp line of green grass on your yard and then like brown, like gross, damp leaves in the other person's yard. And one of the the lovely fruit of these kinds of moments is that as neighbors walk through your street, you know what they're thinking. They're, They're looking and they're thinking, man, that person has a perfect yard. I bet his family is perfect. I bet his children are perfect. Um, I bet his babies never cry and they don't get any bruises from falling down when someone turns their back unexpectedly. Um, I bet that he never has arguments. In fact, I bet that because his yard is so nice, I bet his soul is really nice too. All right, the first service didn't laugh at that either. I thought that was hilarious. I'm exaggerating. I don't really think people are saying that, but you you kind of get my point, right? And and we have these areas in our lives, and we sort of where we 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 uh, sort of polish our trophies, or we take extra care of of our externals, uh, you know, the, the parts of our lives that other people can see, um, so that we can be perceived well. Well, that brings us to our passage today. Uh, this passage that we read in Luke's Gospel of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which is very much a, wow, doesn't my yard look nice kind of moment that we see here in the Gospels. Well, so like I said, we're going to be diving into this. Uh, you could say that this is like a comparing yards sort of moment. Um, but it's also interesting to me, that and if you were here last week and, and remember the gospel passage that was shared, you, you'll know this. But immediately before this is uh, Jesus' parable of the persistent widow. And, and Jesus commends her, and he says, this is a good example. Here you have someone who's, who, who has an adversary somewhere else in the, in the town, in the city, whatever, who's coming after her, and she goes to the judge day after day after day, crying for justice, wanting the judge to act on her behalf. And the lesson that we take from this is, like, this judge is evil, so therefore, like, how much more does your Father in Heaven, the good judge, want to answer the cries for justice of, of your heart? Now, isn't it interesting, then, that immediately after that comes this passage, where Jesus says, right there at the top, this is about uh, people who, who think of themselves as being righteous and hold others in contempt. This is a passage about self-righteousness and humility. And I don't think it's, it's, a, it's um, a, a coincidence that these two passages are right next to each other. And so I think, like, you know, when we have these deep desires in our hearts for justice... I think what Jesus is showing us here is that we need to check our hearts. And we need to understand, is, is this, a, self, is this a, a, a cry that's coming from a place of self-righteousness? Or is this a cry that's coming from humility? And this is a parable that causes us to go into that, to ask that question. To examine our hearts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So there's this uh, goofy, like, I mean, I I try not to tell these kinds of stories, but there's, like, these goofy, like, pastor stories where, like, it's really obvious that, like, this isn't a real story. So I'm going to share one of those. This isn't a real story, but it's kind of funny. So I'm going to share this. So there's this story of a Sunday school teacher who was teaching on this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and then after the lesson leads the, the Sunday school class in prayer saying, Lord, we thank you that we have your word and we have your church, and that therefore we are not like this Pharisee. You know, and we can chuckle at that, and, like that's funny, um, but we, we fail to see that in our chuckling, we're also saying, Lord, thank you that I'm not like this teacher who doesn't even understand the meaning of the parable. <laughs> you know. So like, this is one of those parables that all throughout the, our Christian lives... We can, we can, we can meditate on this and we can dwell on it and the Lord can, can reveal to us the depths of meaning that come out of this. So my hope is that this morning we may truly understand more of the depths and the riches that are available in this parable. May we heed Jesus' word this morning for the sake of our own soul and for the sake of our community. So let's dive in. We're going to look at the Pharisee and the tax collector, uh, and then we'll compare the two. So, two men go to the temple to pray. Now, it's important to know uh, exactly what a Pharisee was. So, if you're you're new to the world of the Bible, the Pharisees, these are like the religious elites. Uh, These are the ones who were like super, super, super devoted to God. They're like the gold standard of religious devotion. And sometimes, like, especially if you've been in the church for a long time, you automatically think, like, Pharisee, hypocrite, bad, boo, you know. This isn't, like, yeah, the Pharisee's bad, like, uh, in this story, but, like, we need to know that this isn't uh, a parable about hypocrisy. Uh, That's really important to know here. Because the original listeners to this, the people there in Jesus' day, they would have heard this, and they would have immediately thought, oh, the Pharisee just stepped into the temple, like, he's he's going to act right in this moment. Like, he's going to know exactly what the right thing to do is. Uh, he's the good guy. He's the gold standard of religious devotion. Now, the Pharisees, they value things like self-control and the study of God's word. They study, uh, uh, and they want to know also, like, the application of God's word to every single facet of life. So here at Restoration, if you've been through the membership class or if you've looked at our website and you've read through our five values, uh, one of them is wholeness. And if you read through the description of that, what we say is the word of God applies to every season of life, from the youngest to the oldest, to every vocation, whatever your job is, the gospel applies to it. and every other facet of society, every facet of this cosmos, we think that God comes comes to restore our lives. And one day he will restore every atom of this universe to be in alignment to his will and to his beauty. And so the Pharisees would have read something like that and been like, yes, like wholeness, totally high five. I'm all about that. Also, as an aside, if you haven't seen the TV series, The Chosen, like that's really great. It's sort of helping shape our imaginations for um, things like tax collectors and Pharisees and things like that. I cry in every episode. It's, it's beautiful. It's extra biblical. So don't like base doctrine off of these things. Um, but anyway, I commend that to you. My point though is that here we have a religious person who is passionate uh in his walk with God. But what does Jesus have to say here? Well the Pharisee is self-righteous. He he let's let's look at the man's posture. So he he comes into the temple, into this this holy gathering and he stands by himself. And as I read that I was like I'm going to be preaching on this and I'm going to be standing by myself. Um like, we, we all need to be open to the reality that, like, this is us. Like, the temptation in this parable is to, is to think of ourselves as the good guy, as the tax collector, right? But Jesus isn't telling it like that. He wants us to know that we are the religious person in this passage. So why does he stand by himself? Well, because he, he, he doesn't know what sort of unclean people are lurking in the shadows of this gathering. He doesn't want to, to bump shoulders with them. He doesn't want his own reputation to be tainted by their presence. You know? He doesn't want them to, to smudge him or anything like that. He wants to protect his own purity. But it's also, uh, when you stand by yourself, you're, you're easier to be seen. You're easier to be heard. Like He wants those things. He wants people's attention to be drawn to himself. And Did you hear the attitude of his prayer throughout this? God, I thank you that I am not like others. The extortioners, that is, those who rob and cheat. I'm not like the unjust, the liars, those who spread misinformation. I'm not like the adulterers, that is, people who have uh, questionable sexual histories. His prayer is so laden with self-congratulatory language that it can hardly even get up off the ground. And then he has the audacity to point to another person who's there in the room and says, thank God I'm not like that one. And he names it. He says, that person's a tax collector and I'm not like him. Thank God. So, St. Augustine, he has this phrase that he coined called, uh, incurvatus inse. And it is, uh, it's to be curved in on oneself. And sometimes in our uh, in, in our language, we talk about, like, navel-gazing, right? Uh, people who like to examine their own belly button lint. Um, people who are curved in on themselves. And so what they do that, uh, is, is their whole life, everything that they're about, even their pursuit of God himself, becomes about them. Like, they turn it in on themselves. Instead of standing up straight and able to, to, to look up to, to, to God and his glory, everything in life, even that which is supposed to be holy and a gift and an and, and object of devotion, sort of gets turned in on himself. And then what happens in these moments, and Augustine says that this is the default posture of the human heart. This isn't something that just Pharisees wrestle with. This is our, our default posture. And when you're shaped like this, you miss out on the opportunities uh, around you. you. You miss out on the, the gifts of this this beautiful creation or, or the brokenness that God is asking you to lean into because it 's all about you it 's all about yourself it 's all about taking all of these things and making sure that everyone else in the room can see just how righteous and, and good and, and how you 're on the right track you know you 're the one with the, the green lawn and everything. Like incurvatus spect- or i almost said incurvatus spectus. That's that's probably Harry Potter. Incurvatus insae um, is is that Augustine phrase? And so for this religious person, his whole life, including his wor- his walk with God, has become a tool to draw attention to himself. And I think we as religious people are so tempted to do that. Oh God, thank you for this building. You must really love us because we're awesome. You know, oh, God, like, I, I've got such a great education. Like, I, uh, you know, everyone around me ought to know that. And thank God that I'm not like these ignorant people or blah, 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 blah. Like, we do this all the time. Like, we drop these little hints and stuff throughout our conversations all the time just to kind of polish our own trophies, to polish our own reputations. All right, well, that's, that's the tax collector. How, or that's the, the Pharisee. How about the tax collector? So, again, if you're new to the, the world of the Bible... Uh, the Jews at this time are being uh, oppressed and controlled by the Romans. Uh, the Romans are uh, uh, rolled in and, and, and implement their law, and they're extracting tons of taxes from the people. And so if you were to even like, count up all the taxes that the Romans want, and then all of the, the tithes and offerings that were required by the law to be given by the Jew to the temple, if you were to include all of that, it's like two-thirds of what these people make Like, talk about oppression, right? Like, all of that going to these systems that are outside of themselves. And so the Jews despise the tax collectors. Because a tax collector is a Jew who was hired by the Romans to extract this money. So imagine, like, one of your loved ones... Uh, living at this time, like imagine like one of your loved ones denying you, uh, denying your community. And not only that, but like denying and betraying that rich heritage that you've that you've obtained from all those generations before you. and And now you're like pulling money from people for the bad guy, you know, of all things. So rather than self-control and application of God's word for the tax collector, their devotion, their purpose in life is just all about their own wealth. Like, they they want their own house to look great. Like, they want their own clothes to look great. And, you know, all this religiosity stuff, all this family stuff, like, kick that to the curb. Who cares about that? And so you can see why a tax collector is like the physical, personified embodiment of betrayal. No one wants a tax collector in the room. When the tax collector walks in the room, everyone just kind of bustles and says, Oh my goodness, do you see that that person's here today? I wonder what so-and-so thinks about that. Like, they just walked in the room. What's the pastor going to do when, when they come up for communion? You know, like, that's what's happening here in this passage. So the tax collector walks into the temple. Now, rather than standing in the spotlight, what's his posture? What well, says he stands far off. He can't make eye contact with anyone else in the room. He's too aware of his own sorrow to even look people in the eye. Have you ever felt that way before where the shame is just so loud in your own heart and in your own imagination that you just assume that people around you are going to be able to read your mind or just see it on your face? That's how sorrowful this man is. He pounds his chest as like a physical way to cope with the emotional pain that he's feeling in this moment. And he names his own sin. He says that he himself is a sinner And he asks God for mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So both his posture and his attitude are remarkably different than that of the religious person. I've had a lot of pastoral meetings this past week. And uh, in one of them, uh, a person was very open about their particular struggle with sin And he said, I just, I don't know if I fit in here anymore. And then he said, I don't know if God loves me anymore. So Jesus says that it's the tax collector who goes home justified. Do you see this great reversal that's happening here in this moment? Jesus is saying it's the tax collector who's justified. That means that he's the one who's now right with God. The tax collector doesn't have anything to fear in his relationship with God right now because of his brokenness, his humility. So the reversal that's happening here and and, and kind of the the reversal of societal uh, uh, structures is kind of a norm in Luke's gospel. Uh, We see um, those who are on the margins often being close to God and we see that here in this moment. The one who brings piety, purity, and obedience, he's the one who's actually farther away from God in this story. And It's the one who brings brokenness and weakness, and dependence, who's declared justified. So I was listening to a podcast the other day, and the two hosts—they went on this rabbit trail. Kind of, uh, they, they both have experiences working in both the business world and then the nonprofit world. And what they were discussing is how uh, people are motivated in different ways in those different contexts. And I thought this was kind of interesting. And and uh, to be totally clear. What I'm about to say, I'm not sure that this totally maps onto your own personal experience. I think it kind of makes sense to me, but I don't want you to hear me say this as if, like, that's totally your situation, okay? Um, but, you know, in the business world, it's a little bit easier and, and, and clear-cut to motivate people because it's about profit. You know, like, you're not going to show up for work if your boss has just recently told you, I'm not paying you anymore. Like, you're not working for this corporation out of... You know, purely, I mean, hopefully you enjoy it, um, but it's not a charity for you, right? And then also that means that when it comes to um, uh, your motivation, like you want to make a good product or create a good service so that it's rewarded well, right? And so that you can hopefully be up for a raise soon. So in that world, it's very much money that sort of helps um, brokerage those conversations and that motivation. But what about in the nonprofit world? Well, it's not necessarily mo- money that motivates people in the nonprofit world. Uh, these two hosts sort of uh, guess that it's things like status. It's things like power and reputation. It's wanting other people in the community to understand that you've got your stuff together, that you're perceived as doing the right thing. And so the theory is that this is why nonprofits, and dare I say churches, typically suffer from power plays, politicking, and gossip. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. You see, this is the unholy fruit of self-righteousness. You see, self-righteousness is not just dangerous for the individual, it's dangerous for the entire church community. Just listen to this. Like, look at the fruit that is so explicit in in this story. So first, we have the fruit of contempt. You know, this person is seeing others as obstacles to their own righteousness. This person is is looking at other human beings and literally distancing themselves from them. So not open to the opportunities of of being a bridge and and, and ministering out of the the gifts that that have been given to him to to seek healing and hope and restoration for this person. No, this person is now unclean and needs to be shunned and pushed away. He doesn't want his reputation to be tarnished by others' presence. But secondly, we see the unholy fruit of gossip here. Now, this man calls out and announces the sin of this other individual. Now, keep in mind, he's not lying. What he's saying here is actually true. This man is a tax collector. He has made bad decisions in his life. But the issue isn't that he's saying something untrue. The issue is that he's broadcasting something that is absolutely none of his business. It's not the Pharisee's job to keep tabs on the tax collector. What is it that brought the tax collector to church this day? Maybe God has been moving in his life. You know, maybe it's that moment that man woke up and he knew that, that something wasn't aligned right in his soul. Maybe that man had people praying for him for years. And this was the day in which God brought him into the temple. And can you imagine him coming in on this day at the climax of, of his spiritual walk? And this is when the tax collector, or this is when the Pharisee wants to point to him and say, Thank God I'm not like him and draw all the attention of the room to this person's brokenness. The the righteous, the religious person does not think that this is an opportunity for change for this person. Because what if this is the day that the tax collector's life is forever changed? The religious person doesn't think that way. The religious person is lacking in imagination for that. And instead the religious person just wants to shun this and push it away for their own edification. And then lastly, the last unholy fruit of this, of this self-righteousness. And this one is really scary because the religious man has no idea about this. But it's condemnation. Jesus says that this person does not go home justified. Now the Pharisee probably has no idea about this. He has no idea about the spiritual wall that he has just placed between himself and God. He's curved himself in on himself, and so he he can't even see God right now. All he can think about is his own project. But God says, you're not justified by this behavior. So as religious people, may we contend with those self-righteous tendencies that are in all of our hearts May we be aware of the unholy fruit that might be bubbling up within us. Now, this parable has a lot to say about self-righteousness. But there is also a lot of hope in this too. Every Sunday, we walk the gospel down into the middle of the congregation. And it gets a little complicated because there's two aisles. And so, you know, every Sunday, we kind of have to figure out, like, which aisle is it going to be, you know. Um, but the, the reason why that happens is to symbolize th- that the word of God, that Jesus, the Son of God, has come and incarnated himself among us, that he stands among us, that he speaks to us, that his word is living and active. Uh, and every Sunday, we read the gospel, and it concludes by saying, this is the gospel of the Lord. Every word in these holy scriptures is life to us. So where do we see the gospel in this? Well, Jesus concludes by saying, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Like I said, I've been having a lot of pastoral conversations with people. And some of you are here and you look around, and you've told me this, that you feel out of place here. You kind of wonder, like, what is it today that even got me here? You know, It's a miracle that you've even walked through the doors today. And you think things like, well, if, if people really knew who I was, or I have so much baggage, could God even love me? And you hear a passage like this, and you think, I'm the extortioner. I'm the unjust. I'm the adulterer. And so that makes you afraid because religious people like the Pharisee and and quite frankly like me have brought attention to the most painful parts of your life. And so first of all, I want to say I am sorry for that. I'm sorry that that has happened to you. Uh, Another conversation that that Molly and I had, uh, um, this person was sharing about a, a broken church experience that they had. And Molly asked, she said, well, what was a lesson that you learned from that moment? And immediately the the answer was, gossip can kill a church. And some of you have experienced that. You know that story through and through. So first I want to say I'm sorry for that. But second, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. You might feel like you're standing far away in the back of the room, but Jesus sees you. And like we see in the story, he loves you and he justifies you. That is, he makes you right with God. That is, he declares forgiveness over you by the power of his cross. And he says, you don't have anything to fear anymore. This reminds me of last week's story of wrestling. You know, and, and, and God sort of gives Jacob a new name. And so because of that, he's able to, to step forward and, and, and um, encounter Esau, his brother, You know, out of that victory, we have peace with God and confidence in our situations. He makes you right. So how do I know that? One, he says so, clearly in this passage. (laughs) Jesus says it's the tax collector who's justified here. But I also know this because Jesus is the supreme, humble, and holy one. Jesus, the son of God, the king of glory, he is the one who descended down and walked among our muck and mire. And he suffered our shame. He took upon himself, upon when he was on the cross, he took upon himself all of our sin, all of our sorrows, all of our brokenness. And on the third day he rose again in glorious light, demonstrating that death, sin and darkness cannot contain him. He received the amen of the Father saying, yes, you have atoned for the sin of the world. Jesus is the Son of God and he holds the keys of life in his hand. And so here what Jesus is saying in this passage is, come and follow me. Come and follow me. Your past doesn't have to define you anymore. Your striving doesn't have to define you anymore. Come, come, be with me. Be welcome into my community. So in a moment, uh, we're going to be celebrating Holy Communion with one another. And this is a moment in which we get to walk in these realities, in which we get to actually hold out our hands and receive, not from from me or, or the other servers, but to receive from Jesus Christ Himself that physical reminder that He nourishes us at His table, that He has given us a new name through the waters of baptism, and that we belong to Him. So I pray that as you come forward today, may you may you receive the peace and the justification and the love of God in that moment. May that be a moment in which God reaches back all the way from from the front of the room to the back of the room and just touches your heart in that moment so that you might rest in knowing Him and His beautiful justification. If that doesn't describe you, if you haven't been baptized, then please come and tell me. We would love to have you baptized here. We'd love to welcome you into the household of God. You can tell me, you can, you can tell uh, Molly, my wife, or any of the other staff, or someone who has a blue lanyard on, uh, uh, the prayer ministers in the back, uh, or the person sitting next to you in the pew, say, how do I get baptized here? We baptize frequently here. We baptize often. And we don't charge any money for it. We want you to be a part of this family because God has made us a part of this family. So come and join us. As we pursue Christ together, please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we are sinners, but you are the righteous one. So, Lord, may you remind us that you have clothed us in your righteousness, and that you have filled us with the Holy Spirit to battle against uh, the sin of this world. And we do so, Lord, not for our own self-righteousness, but, Lord, we do so for your glory, to bring honor and glory to your name. So, Lord, teach us as a congregation how to walk in these truths. May we be a humble church, Lord, who is constantly being reminded of our dependence upon you and no one else. We ask this, Jesus Christ, in your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen.